start off this morning with a story. A reporter was interviewing an old man on his 100th birthday, and he asked, What are you most proud of? Well, said the man, I don't have an enemy in the world. What a beautiful thought. How inspirational, said the reporter. Yep, out of the aged man, outlived every one of them. <laughs> Unlike that elderly man, not only do we have an enemy, which we talked about last night, but we are behind enemy lines. And we have to understand that. One of the problems the church faces is that many have misidentified who our enemy is, and, and they're busy making an enemy out of allies. And Pastor Kurt has already talked about dealing with false brethren, and tomorrow morning, I hope you'll be here as you talk about uh, our battle with the brethren. But the one thing I will touch on, I won't spend much time on that, is our enemy is not the church. There are times that we need to correct, obviously, believers with the truth of doctrine. We need to have to help them understand what's true, but our enemy is not the church. And I see an awful lot of friendly fire that's happening out there in this world. I see too often on social media, if a person doesn't agree 100% with them or their favorite teacher, all they like to do is throw insults at them. And that's why I appreciate what Pastor Kurt said earlier about making sure that we're not doing that. Turn with me to Romans chapter 12, verse 10. I want to look at this verse real quick. I'm not going to deal with this topic much here, but I do want to point out as we're behind enemy lines, we do need to identify where the enemy, who the enemy is, and also you know, what the battlefield is. And that's really what I want to talk about mostly here. But Romans chapter 12, verse 10, if you have your Bibles, says, Be kindly affectionated one to another. And here he's talking about from a believer to another believer. So we need to be kindly affectionate one to another with brotherly love. And then this next part. In honor, preferring one another. Scripture tells us to esteem the others better than ourselves, to put them first. Too oftentimes I see believers, especially as young grace believers, we get filled with knowledge and we can sometimes get a little pompous with that, a little arrogant with that. So eager to go show everybody else where they're wrong because we want everybody to see where we're right. And there is a time and place for correcting other people. That should be handled with care. That should be handled also by someone that has more than simply knowledge, but somebody who understands grace. Hopefully by somebody that's been in the ministry long enough to properly handle the situation. There's a reason why the Apostle Paul was the one who went back to Jerusalem to handle the situation that Pastor Kurt was talking about before. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, we're going to look at verses 10 through 13. We're going to talk about our enemy and our weapons. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. 
For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. It's clear from verse 12 here and other passages throughout throughout Scripture, it's clear from here we're fighting a spiritual battle against Satan and the fallen angels that followed him in rebellion against God. That is who our enemy is. These principalities and powers, that's who our enemy is. It's not even the unbeliever so much. Yes, they are enemies of the gospel, that's for sure. But ultimately, as we see here, our battle is not against flesh and blood. There's a higher battle that's at stake here. It's a spiritual battle. Well, spiritual battles require spiritual weapons. I think it's interesting here in verse 13, that word wherefore. He says, wherefore take unto you. I don't know about you, but I read this really as nothing more than a practical warning from the Holy Spirit here. We had five sons and one daughter, and whenever we sent our daughter off to college, I made sure I gave her some pretty practical instructions. Make sure you lock the door at night. Make sure that you respect the curfews. Make sure that you do these things so that you can stay safe. And this is really what we're seeing here. He's, the Holy Spirit's warning us believers. Look what he says. He says, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might in verse 10. Put on the whole armor of God. And look at that next part. That you may be able to stand. Does that not sound like a very emphatic statement? It would be like me telling my daughter, make sure you do this. So that you're safe. How often do we take this serious? I think it's a pretty serious warning that we have. It's a clear passage. And it's a clear warning. As I mentioned last night. That Satan is not just sitting around waiting for his demise. He's active. He's actively engaged in this battle. And if you, if you weren't here last night. I pointed out the fact that you and I are his favorite target. If you're a believer. You're his favorite target. Some look at life, maybe we sometimes fall into this habit, we look at life as God is up there and Satan's down there, and this is our domain, and we can just kind of do things how we want to do, and, you know, it'll all work out in the end, and, you know, Satan will stay in his area, God's in his area, and we just kind of make our own decisions. But is that really the way the Scriptures suggest the situation is? I don't think it is. I think Satan's very active, and I think he's actively engaged to try and kill, rob, and destroy, and to mess up anything that God is trying to do. Now, it is true that Satan doesn't have the same kind of activity he had 2,000 years ago. I don't know, have you ever wondered why is it that whenever Christ was, was on the earth that you had you know, all of this demonic possessions and all of these things going on and I often and if you're a pastor I'm sure that you've as well had that question about possessions today well, let me 
be the first to tell you, if you've not heard before, I don't, at least I don't believe anyway, that a Christian can be possessed by the devil. Because a Christian is possessed by the Holy Spirit. But just because things are not the same way today doesn't mean that Satan's not active. He's active in a different way. So don't be fooled. He says here in verse 12, for we wrestle. I want you to note that word wrestle. When somebody's wrestling, there's an active battle that's going on. There's an action. Hands-on combat is what wrestling is. And what happens in a wrestling match? You know, does, do any of you have brothers? Or if your girls have sisters and you wrestle? Me and my cousin used to wrestle. Well, if, if me and him were wrestling one another and I didn't wrestle back, I'm going to get pinned. <laughs> right? And this is why it says we are wrestling here. It's just how are we wrestling? Who are we wrestling against? So one of the ways that I would suggest that Satan is not busy working today is he's not busy trying to attack the line of Christ like he had been doing 2,000 years ago and many years before that. So if he's not attacking the same way that he was many years ago, you know, in the Old Testament, you had God tell Israel that they needed to go, go to battle against certain groups, go inhabit this land and to, to, to destroy the inhabitants. And, and you know, through progressive revelation, we can understand why that is the case. Because Satan would try to corrupt the line of Christ, but that, that battle is done and over with. But, that, but again, I, what I want to emphasize is, is that doesn't mean that Satan is at work. And so if he's not attacking the line of Christ, and if we're not told to go out and destroy and kill people because we need to protect the line of Christ, where is it that Satan is attacking you? What is he attacking today? I heard somebody say the answer. Where is the battlefield? Well, I think here in Ephesians chapter 6, we can see the answer to that. Because oftentimes, the way you're going to tell your battlefield is what kind of weapons you take into that battle. Our weapons tell us what this battle is. Look at verse 14, Ephesians 6. Stand, therefore, having your loins girt about with truth. Truth. What's the opposite of truth? Lies. So the Holy Spirit saw fit to tell each and every one of us, I don't care if you're young or if you're old, but what you need is the truth. That's what you need to stand up against the satanic battle that we have going for us. It's, it's this, this battle between the truth and lies. That's where it's at. Verse 15, it says, And your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Verse 16 tells us, above all, taking on the shield of faith. Verse 17 tells us that to have the word of God. And verse 18 says prayer. I don't see any physical swords there. See, all of this, as I'm going to suggest to you momentarily, is the battlefield is for your mind. That's where the battle is. That's where Satan's trying to infiltrate. He's trying to grab a hold of your mind and lead you somewhere. 
Satan may be smart, but the one thing that we can say is, is he's very predictable. Very predictable. How did he attack Eve? As God said. Yeah, he attacked her mind. He tried to infiltrate her mind and divide her from the truth with a lie. That's what he tried to do. He tried to, or he did, change the word of God, hoping that he would corrupt Eve's mind. Satan was trying to change and to corrupt her thinking. He was trying to divide man from God by separating man from the truth. That's what he was doing. The way to separate God from man is to separate man from the truth. And I plan to show to you that why I believe that that is as simple as that sounds, that's the reality of the situation. Satan is the father of lies and uses people's emotions and desires to deceive both the unbeliever and the believer. Sometimes I think that we think that just because we're believers that we can't be fooled. Well, I'm here to tell you, I've been a fool many times in my life. We can be fooled. That's why I didn't bring my wife, because she might have told you a few ways I was a fool. So. <laughs> he de- Satan desires to deceive, deceive us into believing anything other than what God has said. You think of the subject. Anything, he wants you to believe anything other than what God has said. Any subject. Parenting. How has Satan infiltrated the world today to try to deceive people in what is good parenting versus bad parenting? He's convinced the world that a way in which the Bible describes instruction, oh, you can't do it that way. He's trying to change people's minds, and the unfortunate reality is is Satan hasn't just convinced the unbeliever, he's also convinced believers. Marriage, homosexuality, government, any of these, in all of these areas, Satan, his battleground is to get into your mind and try to separate us on any of these issues from the truth of God on all of these issues. He's actively trying to divide the Christian from God. You know, we often hear Satan's greatest lie is to convince people that he doesn't exist. And I don't believe that. I used to believe that. I don't think he cares whether or not you think he exists. All he cares about is if whether or not he can get to convince you not to believe God's word. That's what he wants. He's trying to divide us. He will look to draw out pride and emotion. Pride is one of those topics that I, I, I try to remind the believer how dangerous pride is for each of us. You think of when, when we choose leaders, how we choose our leaders. And I'm not talking about on presidential, I'm talking about anything. And we look at how God chose leaders. What did he look into the heart to see? And that was humility. See, God, or Satan, 
takes that emotion and that pride and uses it against ourselves. And he tries to draw out pride and emotion. And he is the one saying that people have the right to love whomever they choose. He's the one that's saying that. He's the one saying the Bible is archaic in raising children. He's the one saying your truth can be different from the truth. He's the one saying God doesn't determine if you're a male or a female. He's the one saying people can merit or maintain their own salvation. He's the one saying a loving God would never send people to hell. It's Satan that lies to people today. And I hear this, you you hear this all over the place. That we're all the children of God. Well, that's a lie of Satan. Galatians 3.26 is clear. It says we are children by God. By faith in Christ Jesus. That's how we're a child of God. It's interjecting a little bit of lie into the situation. He doesn't care if you believe in God, as long as you believe the wrong things. It's Satan that says doctrine doesn't matter, just love one another. These are all ways Satan's trying to deceive the world. Have you ever stopped and pondered all the ways that you encounter that Satan is trying to deceive you? You should, because the battle is for your mind. That's where he's trying to get you. And he uses your emotion. Oftentimes it's pride. That's what he's trying to use to grab a hold of you and lead you away. The great thing is, is once you're saved, you're saved. But how prepared are you for the attacks of Satan? You know, people might wonder, well, how important really is prayer? How important is doing a morning devotion? Well, let me give you a practical example. Has anybody in here been in the military? Now, I'm pretty certain, I've never gone into battle, but I'm pretty certain before you go into battle, the military is going to to have a briefing to prepare you for that battle. They're going to tell you, this is what you can expect on the battlefield. This is what we foresee that's going to happen. Here's the battle plan. Well, this is what prayer, and this is what daily devotion, this is what your scripture is, is because guess what? You're behind enemy lines. And if you're not listening to your commanding officer, if you're not listening to your general, it's about as silly as as going into hands-on combat without finding out what your instructions are. It's really as basic and simple as that. Are you a Berean? Is the question. Do you search the scriptures daily? And, and, And we usually use that in the sense of you know, Christians seeing if this doctrine is true and this doctrine, and that's, that's exactly right. But that's not the only way you need to be a Berean. That's not the only way you need to search the Scriptures daily. You need to search the Scriptures daily to see if the wisdom of the world lines up with the wisdom of God and compare it. And whenever you hear the wisdom of the world saying, well, that's the way we used to raise kids and that's not the appropriate way to do it anymore, you compare that wisdom to the wisdom of God on each and everything. We must submit our minds to the authority that is Christ. 
you must search the scriptures on all these issues. Because as soon as you don't, as soon as you say, you ever catch yourself saying this? Somebody's talking about the Bible and they say, well, this is what I think. And, and, and we say that, but really, doesn't it really matter what it says more than what I think? See, the battle is for your mind. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4 with me. We looked at this last night, but I want to draw out another point from this. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3 and 4. If you weren't here last night, we looked at this to point out that Satan is active. But it doesn't get much clearer than this, that this is where Satan's trying to get you. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 3 says, But if our gospel be hid, it's hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not. This is where Satan is working. He's not trying to possess people in the physical sense like he used to. He's trying to capture your mind. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 2 with me, verse 4. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4. It's one of my favorite verses. I don't know about you, especially other pastors. Pastor Dilly, do you ever do this? you ever study a, a book of the Bible and say, this is one of my favorite books of the Bible, and then you get to another book of the Bible, and you're like, well, actually, this is one of my favorite books. It happens to me all the time, and it happens to me with verses. But this one is, as few words as it is, it's an enormous statement here. Who will have all men to be saved and come unto the knowledge of the truth. This is much more and if you don't hear anything else, hear this. This is much more than God wants you to know the truth. That's not the word that was used here, is it? What word does it use here? Come. Now, I'm going to get fancy with the Greek here. I'm going to tell you that what come means in the Greek is to come. Okay, Kind of like when you have children. I'd say to my son, Joshua, and I might say it with a certain tone, if you know what I mean, come here. When I said, come here, I didn't expect me to go to him, did I? I expected him to come over to me. And see, this is what this verse is telling you. This verse isn't telling you that God wants you to know the truth. He's telling you where you're going to find it. He's telling you, you've got to go to him. That's what he's saying with this verse. This, this, this word, actually, it's a verb that denotes to move or travel towards the speaker. And who spoke this? God. See, it's God's will that all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. It's telling you, it's telling all of us, it's proclaiming to the world that if you want the truth, then you've got to come here. To me is what God says. This is what he's talking about. This is why in John, John 1.14, Jesus is full of grace and truth. Full. Think of that. Nothing lacking. 100% full of truth. Have you ever treated Christ in his word? Here's my challenge. Ask yourself in sincerity. Have you ever treated God in his word like he's somehow lacking in truth. 
Like somehow that was written 2,000 years ago. It can't be applicable today. That was cultural. If you approach it that way, then you're suggesting that Jesus wasn't full of truth. People say, I know what it says, but then they have a reason not to apply it. I would suggest to you that's what Adam and Eve did. But friends, when we're not listening to God, there is a very good chance you're listening to his enemy. I'll say that again. Anytime we're not listening to God, there's a very good chance we're listening to his enemy. Sometimes that's our own flesh. But many times it's the wisdom of the world that's put out there by his enemy. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Notice the use of the definite article. He didn't say, I am a truth. He says, I'm the truth. No one comes to the Father except by me. There's no exceptions there. And there's also no exception when it comes to the truth. Which is why I say the world will say that you can have your own truth, and that's different than the truth. My friends, there is no truth apart from God. Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln, you might remember a famous quote that he had made back in the time of the revolutionary, not revolution, the Civil War. There was a question People were spouting between the North and the South, God's on our side, God's on our side, you know, and everything like that. And you probably are familiar with what he said. He said, sir, my concern is not whether God is on our side. My greatest concern is to be on God's side because God is always right. That doesn't have to be simply on, on something as huge as a civil war. That's on parenting. That's on marriage. That's on everything. But the battle is for your mind to try to convince you that, oh, it's not that big of a deal. My friend, it's a slippery slope. Jesus is the truth. And you cannot reside, you cannot find truth on any subject and be in opposition to Christ. I'll say it again. You cannot find or reside in truth and be in opposition to Christ on any subject. If it's truth, then it's Christ. The right view on any subject is God's view. It's a mistake anytime we believers override or replace the Word of God applied to our lives with the word of man. Anytime that we replace this with our own thinking and apply that to our lives instead of this, it is a mistake. Are you familiar with the name Gene Hamilton? You might have heard of William C. Anderson's book, Bat 21. You ever heard of that? It tells the real life story of Gene Hamilton. He was a U.S. Air Force navigator who became the focus of the largest rescue operation for one man in Air Force history after his plane was shot down behind enemy lines during the Vietnam War. 
He was assigned to an air base in Thailand in April of 1972. Hamilton was on his 63rd combat mission over Vietnam when his aircraft was hit by a surface-to-air missile at 30,000 feet. The only member of his six-man crew able to eject, so that yes, that means the other five, did not survive. This 53-year-old navigator spent the next 11 and a half days evading capture. He parachuted into this demilitarized zone that was separating North and South Vietnam, which at the time was very dangerous. And the previous American ground combat presence in South Vietnam was gone. So there was a, a huge presence, but that was gone. The North Vietnamese Army had just launched a major offensive against the South Vietnamese Army and more than 30,000 troops equipped with tanks and artillery were moving through the area. That sounds like a dangerous situation. A pilot who was involved in support of the South Vietnamese uh, monitored Hamilton's descent, talking to him via his emergency radio as he dropped into a rice, rice paddy and he took cover. Hamilton was wounded by shrapnel when the rear of his plane exploded and he kept in touch with the U.S. through this emergency radio and he directed numerous airstrikes against enemy supply lines. And after some failed air rescue attempts, it was decided that the Navy SEAL, Lieutenant Thomas Norris, and a small team would infiltrate enemy lines to attempt to pick up Hamilton and another rescuer who had gone down in search and rescue. Aware that the North Vietnamese radio monitors understood English, this is interesting, this is true. The radio message from a forward air controller told them, get to the snake, make like Esther Williams, and float to Boston. That's a pretty interesting instruction. Hoping that the Americans would understand that it meant to go to the river, swim east like Esther Williams, because she was an American competitive swimmer at the time. Hamilton, however, was much further from the river than Clark. And he would have to maneuver around enemy-occupied villages and gun emplacements. What are they going to do? Stuck behind enemy lines. With the enemy all around him. Is he going to try to figure it out on his own? Rescue planners discovered that Hamilton was one of the best golfers in the Air Force, and he had a vivid memory of the courses he had played, and they came up with an idea. They were going to guide him to the river via a series of specific golf course holes that had been provided by his golfing buddies. I would have not survived. <laughs> Hamilton survived, and he recalled later in 2001 with Golf Digest, he said the planners told him, you're going to play 18 holes and you're going to get to the Suwanee and make like Esther Williams and Charlie the two. <laughs> the round starts on number one at Tucson National. Hamlet said it took him a while to figure out they were giving him distance and direction. Number one at Tucson National is 408 yards running southeast. 
They wanted me to move southeast 400 yards. The course would lead me to water. And on the night of the eighth day in hiding, Hamilton began walking this imaginary fairways that had been mapped for him in his mind, playing the hole number four at Abilene Country Club on the ninth day, 195 yards. So you can see multiple days he's got to, got to do all of this. And as it's recounted in the book Bat 21, where the title gets its name from the call sign of his flight, his aircraft, he passed a seemingly deserted hut when a rooster suddenly emerged. Now, this guy's hungry. He'd lost 45 pounds, 11 days. This guy's hungry. He sees a rooster and says the first thing he thought was food. And that's what he went after. But the problem was that rooster made a noise. And emerged from the dark darkness in the hut, uh, a man slashed him in his left shoulder with a knife. And in the ensuing tussle, Hamilton used his own knife to stab his assailant to death. Later, while suffering from dehydration, Hamilton was told to play hole number four at Corona de Tucson. Short part three, where he'd find a refreshment stand. What they meant by that was that there was a banana plantation and he was able to cut a hole in the trunks of the stalks and drink water from it. During this foray, he got lost and fell off a cliff. He broke his arm in the process, but it was his familiarity with the golf courses and his memory that he was able to follow the instructions to get away from the enemy and ultimately be brought back home. It was because... He hid in his heart. That's what I'm trying to get across to you. You've got to hide this in your heart. You have to have the instruction manual. These events can hopefully remind us all how important it is to listen to our instructions when we're behind enemy lines. Gene Hamilton had different options in front of him. Think of it. He could have just simply headed right for the enemy and hoped for mercy. Hoped that they would be merciful to him. He could have tried to find his own path through the situation. But he didn't. He chose to do exactly what we should be doing, and that's to listen to the one who knows the right path when taking and navigating through enemy territory. That's what we should be doing. We're behind enemy lines just like him. And just like it was essential for him to listen to the ones who knew the right path, is it not just as essential that we guard our hearts, that we guard our minds, and we make sure that we're listening to the one who's given us the instructions on how to navigate this course? My friends, we have a battle. And it rages with or without our determined effort to advance the cause of Christ. As a believer, we're saved, according to Ephesians, until the day of redemption. You can have the full assurance of salvation the moment you put your faith and trust in Christ's finished work, and you know that you're saved all the way until the day of redemption. That's not going to change. But we have a battle. And whether or not you have a determined effort to advance the cause of Christ, 
Well, I believe that's your choice or not. But I'm here to tell you it's a noble battle. In the Revolutionary War, George Washington famously said, Our cause is noble. It's the cause of mankind. And I don't often disagree with our first president. There is no more noble cause than to advance the cause of Christ. That's the most noble cause. And it really is the cause of mankind. And last thought. During the American Revolution, there were many issues of people fighting, not as they should fight, but as they wanted to fight. They decided to do it their way, not listening to the instructions. And that led to another quote that I want to share with you. See, I believe history is important. We can learn a lot from history. This one's from John Hancock. He says, we must be unanimous. There must be no pulling different ways. We must hang together. And my friends, I'm not even suggesting that it's 100% essential for believers to hang together. That's not how I'm applying this right now. The battle is for the minds of mankind, and we must not pull in a different direction than Christ. See, we must be united in our minds with Christ. We must not pull in a different direction than Him. We must hang together with Christ. And there's one simple way to do it. We must bring into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. That's how you protect yourself from the wiles of the devil. That's your battle plan in this world, is to take this word, to memorize it as much as you can here, and to follow his plan. And it's just like with the situation with humble, being guided and directed safely through. Doesn't mean it's not going to be difficult. Doesn't mean that it's not going to have problems. But I don't know about you, I would, but I would much rather follow God's instructions on how to deal with this than stumble along in my own way. Because I can promise you I will stumble. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you this afternoon for this time that we have that we can be reminded of your word and how important it is. Lord, I thank you for this conference. I thank you for Pastor Dilly and, and all of those here that um, so, so much cherish your word and that are actively involved in advancing your cause. Lord, I pray for this local assembly and the work that they're doing. And, and Lord, I just pray that as we finish up this conference tomorrow that we can find joy in the work and this cause that we have. This battle that rages isn't meant to always be somber and be scared. You want us to be joyful. So Lord, I pray that as, as Christians we find joy in the work that's set before us. 
Lord, always we just pray that the things that we say, the things that we do, bring glory and honor to you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.